0: Along with most women who struggled with their weight, I believed that I could resolve what seemed to be the source of my self-hatred. I would be thin, happy, free. It made so much sense, taking away the source of the pain, and the pain will go away, leaving a bright spirit in its place. So says today's guest, Janine Roth, whom we will meet in just a moment. Hello, everyone. My name is Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. Janine Roth is a name that you may well be aware of. She is the author of 10 books, including New York Times bestseller When Food is Love, Lost and Found, Women, Food, and God. And today we are talking about this messy, magnificent life. Janine Roth, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Now, Janine, you heard me quote uh, from This Messy, Magnificent Life, uh, but you learned that your view that if you took away the source of the pain, the pain would go away, that wasn't quite on target. Tell us a little bit about how you learned to shift that view. Um, Well... I learned to shift
1: it because when I lost weight, as what happens to so many women, um, we lose weight, and we think everything's going to be fine, and all that's changed is the size of our thighs. Now, I know for many of us that's a big deal. That's not a little deal to change the size of our thighs. And we are momentarily happy. It's true. We are momentarily happy. But it wasn 't actually what was causing us to be unhappy or what was at the source of why we were eating and and so um, you know I hear women say things like, "I would die to be as, as thin as I was five years when I would have died to have been thinner mm-hmm. so a, a sense of it's just it just doesn 't make it it 's just not it, and I think what happens to many women in in their disappointment about the fact that they're not forever more happy when they lose weight, in their disappointment, they actually turn to food again to gain weight because they think, ah, what the hell, if it's not going to make what I thought better better, I might as well turn to food again, I might as well have a good time with food, and so they gain the weight back, and thus the cycle of losing and gaining and losing and gaining.
0: So I might as well go back to the perception is what made me happy since I'm not happy now. That's right. However,
1: of course, food and overeating or emotional eating or compulsive eating, and the way I define compulsive eating is eating when you're not hungry and not stopping when you've had enough, that doesn't actually make people happy I mean, because, you know, what I often say is when you're happy, when you love something, you pay attention to it. When you love something, you really do it without distractions. You know, you're there. You're focused. What people do with food is endlessly distract themselves. They eat, and they're on their Facebook page or on their Instagram or on social media or watching television or talking or reading or walking or standing at the refrigerator or cooking at the stove. So they're not actually paying attention to the food. What I, you know, what I say in the book, In This Messy, Magnificent Life, is that attention is the key. And attention is the way you really gift yourself or bless yourself with your own self-care. And or love that's another way of saying it, but we rarely, rarely give ourselves that kind of attention it 's a rare commodity.
0: Are you suggesting in all of the work that you've done that overeating is a result of some unresolved something? period across the board. I mean, you know, there are people who say, um, I'm X number of pounds and I'm happy with this weight. I think that's possible. Okay.
1: I think that's really possible. I don't think that um, weight, your weight determines uh, your happiness or unhappiness. Those things are don't have to be directly correlated. They often are unfortunately, because of many beliefs we lay upon weight, but they don't have to be. So, and I'm not actually saying that um, everybody who uh, has unresolved issues uh, overeats. I'm not saying that either. I'm saying that for many of us, we express our beliefs like, I'm not enough. I'm a failure. I'm unlovable. I'll never make it. We express those things through food because, really, the truth is, we are what we believe, and we express those deep-seated and core beliefs through everything we do, through our interactions, through how we talk to our friends, through uh, our relationships with our colleagues, and most especially through our relationship with food because. Food is just me and food. It's not me and somebody else. You know, as soon as you add in other people and other factors, you have a complex series of um, things going on, of factors. It's what the scientists call multifactorial. But when there's food involved, it's just me and the food my beliefs, what I think, how I feel, what I feel like I deserve, if I feel like I didn't get enough of what I actually really wanted, well then it's just me and food right now. I can take as much as I want and I can get more than enough food.
0: You know, we, I would suggest that we live, certainly here in America, in a world where more is always better. Um, and certainly food is available in abundance for some of us, for some uh-huh. not. But. I wonder if you think that the more is better that translates to eating more food, whether you're hungry or not, is that something that is particular to the United States, or do you think that's sort of a, a worldwide experience?
1: Well, I think it's a Western culture experience, and the Western culture is spreading all over the world, or in many places in the world, and the more is better is a lie. You know, I found that out when we lost all of our money in 2008, and I realized that even before we lost our money, I always felt anxious about not having enough i wasn't focused on what we did have and when i talked to many financial advisors uh right after we lost our money they told me that no matter who they ever work with somebody comes to them and says i want to save let's say fifty thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars or six million dollars whatever it is that people want to save they get to their mark of what they want to save and immediately immediately they raise it to twice as much and so there's a sense that as you just said more is better but the issue is and you know You can see everything you believe through your relationship with food, which is why I'm endlessly compelled by, fascinated, and still working with people on their relationships with food after decades of doing this because it is so revealing. So if I am eating a meal... And I have food in my mouth. Usually, what happens, and we do eating meditations at our retreats where we eat together, and I really work with people on what's going on, on the amount of food they took, you know, on what that has to do with whether it's a rebellion, because their mother told them you're not allowed to eat mashed potatoes, and now their mother isn't here, and so they're, but silently their mother is there because they're saying, you know, I'm going to eat whatever I want, Mom, even though you're not here. And, you know, there's still an active presence mm-hmm. of not enough. Um, but we get to see what's going on with the food on our plate. We get to see what we really believe. What, so somebody can have food in their mouth. And they're not focused on that, even if they're not on social media, even if they're not reading, even if they're not talking. They're not focused on the food in their mouth. They're focused on the food that's yet to come, on getting more, on having more. I did an eating meditation recently with 550 people at a business conference. And what I discovered was the same thing I discovered in my retreats, which is that one for instance one woman said let me let me, let me do this
0: let me do this janine let let me take a break and then when we come okay. back i want you to tell us what you discovered in this experience that you're about to describe to us so folks okay great stay right where you are i am pleased to be speaking with janine roth who is the author of many many Books, but today we're focusing on this messy, magnificent life. We'll be right. you you mentioned a minute ago the eating meditations that you do, and I was really struck by that concept. As you well know, there are so many people who, uh, as you say, whether they're engaged in something else or just focused on their food, they eat so quickly that they don't even taste their food, and they have no idea really how much they've consumed. And they consume a whole lot more when they're eating so quickly. I would so what
1: I was saying was that the eating meditation with business people what what I discovered and what they discovered, what one woman said, "I have more than enough carrots on my plate, but I 'm already worried I'm not going to get enough because we're sitting at tables with ten people mm-hmm. so she was worried there wasn't going to be enough before she even finished what was on her plate so i I think that it's a general way of being of living that we don't take in what we have. And all the neuroscientists are saying the same thing, in that people, our brains are geared when what they call a negativity bias. We see what's wrong. But Another way we could say that is what we don't have enough of rather than what's right and or what we do have enough of. And so we're constantly going for more to satisfy something that can never be satisfied, because unless we pay attention to what we already have, or I say, unless you let yourself have what you already have, you're never going to feel like you have enough. And that includes the food on your plate, the intimacy in your life, the success you already have, the fact that it's another day above ground, and you're alive, and you're breathing, and you have arms, and you have legs, most of us do, uh, like that
0: the idea and I'm now I'm still referring to folks in business you know it used to be that you had an hour for lunch That was just what you had. But nowadays, you know, it's so common to have a half hour for lunch. So are we perhaps in a culture that really promotes our not paying attention to what we eat, not paying attention to how we're feeling, uh, but just sort of gobbling something down and then moving on? I
1: think we are. I think the culture we're living in is somewhat mad, and with its emphasis on externals and on getting more and on never having enough. So I think to do this does require thinking for yourself and doing things differently than the people around you are doing. You know, I I will often say to women who find that when they lose weight, they're not part of what I call the suffering club anymore. They're not part of uh, uh, you know, the dieting culture. That's just an example of a piece of the culture, a faction of the culture. Um, this takes realizing that you're not happy doing things the way you're doing them. There's discontent there. There's a low-level feeling of anxiety. Now, yes, that's partly because of the culture we're living in and um, the anxiety, especially now, about what's going on in our world, but also it's because of what we're just talking about, the low-level anxiety, the feeling of never having enough, the feeling of... um, you know, wanting more and never being satisfied of discontent. And so this takes realizing you're not happy. What can you do about it?
0: The notion that uh, people who are often so desperately trying to lose weight, um, feeling so consumed by the fact that they are in their view or in the view of the people around them overweight and that they could lose weight and then somehow unconsciously, albeit, want to bring the weight back because it served them in some way. That's a hard concept for some folks to pay attention to.
1: Yes, it certainly is. I, I But, you know, I, this is, it's a hard truth, but it's true, and I found this. In my own life, I was quite overweight. I was 50, 60 pounds overweight. um, And it took me, I mean, amongst many other things, I had a very unhappy relationship with food and myself. I didn't like myself, not because of what I weighed, but because I didn't like myself. Mm. What I also found about my weight was that it was helping me in some way. It was speaking for me in a way that I couldn't speak for myself. It was keeping unwanted attention away. It was keeping me uh, feeling unattractive. And so I was able, this took a lot of digging on my part, actually, not so much. It took me doing what I call a fat dialogue between me and fat, where I just wrote it down. Uh, you know it's an old gestalt trick where you um take one part of yourself and that has a voice and then another, and then you speaking to each other and What I realized through that this happened at the very beginning before I lost any weight was that I was afraid to be thin because I was afraid that when I was thin and I had been thin before in my life i would I would um, further away my attention, I would throw myself pretty much, I mean, not literally, but um, be attracted to people who didn't want me, and then it became a big thing, how to get them to want me? So that's how I would spend my attention instead of writing or working. You know, the bulk of my emotional energy would go to that, and that was a very unhappy pursuit, and as long as I was fat i wasn 't doing that, and so I had to see that I had the power to do that myself this is a This is a process of owning what 's yours of of women owning their power, so to speak, the power to say no, the power that 's inherent in having a woman 's body Now, I know that um, there 's been so much in the news about women 's bodies and uh, Uh, the Me Too movement and all of that is really important and valid and worthy of paying attention to and worthy too. in the book I have something called The Red String Project of women understanding, taking, claiming the space and being able to say no, I don't want to and understanding that no is a complete sentence.
0: And that, for many women, is a huge task in and of itself. Yeah, it is. You talk about ghost children. Tell us what you mean.
1: Yes, and, you know, there's a chapter called Be Kind to the Ghost Children. What I mean by that is that there are um, fragments, memories, or parts, some people call it, from the past, inside ourselves, places where we didn't get recognized or cherished, where something happened and we formed a belief about who we are, about, for instance, not never being lovable, about being a failure, about not ever being able to make it. And those parts of ourselves got frozen in the past. and And that's what I call ghost children. So they each have... Uh, a voice or a belief about being alive and what I say is to be kind to them because for many of us it's those parts of ourselves that take the lead that speak for us it's not actually the adult it's not actually the part that's present and aware it's the part that um, you know feels like it's going to be rejected no matter what so what the hell just go away already that 's what that 's what a ghost child is
0: the, at the back of uh, this messy, magnificent light there, there are many sort of reminders um, that you encourage uh, the reader to pay attention to. Uh, you, you refer to them as touchstones for breaking the trance. And one of the things that you say is to stop believing your thoughts. Now, that's sort of a, just that concept for some folks is really kind of a head twister. Why do you want <laughs> folks to stop believing their thoughts? Uh-huh. Well, you know, it's one of the
1: first things you learn in meditation which I also talk about in the book, even a couple of minutes a day, what you learn when you meditate. And so I'm applying many years of meditation in my own case to what I've learned about my mind as well as watching people and their minds. So the mind is basically crazy. You, we've all got, or what the what people call, monkey mind. So you know, we go from one thought to another thought. We go ricochet from the past to the future. We can have a thought of bitterness, hatred, revenge, and envy. Um, you know, the mind just is all over the place. And so, what you learn in meditation is you sit there for even three minutes is that your mind just keeps going and going and going with one thought after another thought, uh, what you like, what you don't like, what you're going to do, what you should have done, what you never, ever should have done, no matter what. And it gets to, it's, it's, it's a Ferris wheel of thoughts after a while, and you realize that if you hop on every single one, then you're you're just, um, believe in one thing after another, and there's something deeper that is possible to identify with, to believe in, which is a soft and uh, ever-present sense of being here, of presence, so to speak, And that's what we're talking about. That's what I'm talking about. It's what you can rely on. It's what's been here through everything in your life. And it's possible to access that, not just, you know, by having big epiphanies or being in 40 years of therapy, but daily. 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 And how you do that, well, you know, one of the things is to ask yourself, what's not wrong right now? What's not wrong Right now, there's a whole chapter called "What's Not Wrong" in the book. Um, something that I learned from spending a month with Thich Nhat Han, the Vietnamese peace activist. Uh, and he asked uh, he asked the whole group one day, "When you have a toothache, you spend all your time thinking about the toothache. But when you don't have a toothache, you never think about how fortunate you are not to have a toothache. So in any moment." There's so much more that's not wrong than what is wrong, and we don't pay attention to that. And one way of switching your energy immediately, right now anybody who's listening can do this, is to ask yourself what's not wrong right now. And what happens when you do that, you, you go from the little things, I'm holding my favorite cup, or I have arms and legs, or I'm breathing. It's another day above ground. From little things to big things. I have friends. I'm I you know um, um, walking outside. It's beautiful right now. Anything. I mean, you start listing the things that aren't wrong, and what happens is your sense of... Being here expands your sense of of rightness, your sense of um, spaciousness, so to so to speak, of presence starts becoming more and more and more apparent, and your energy shifts.
0: Janine, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we I just want to talk a couple of more seconds about the idea of what's not wrong. Folks, this is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk and I'm having a conversation with Janine Roth, author of This Messy, Magnificent Life. We'll be right back. Janine, as I was reading this magnificent, this messy, magnificent life, and I saw the sentence, Mm -hmm. ask yourself what's not wrong. And I had to go back and read it again because you're right. I mean, we're so programmed to – I just assumed it said what's wrong. And then I I said, oh, oh, what's not wrong? And it immediately (laughs) shifts – something significant in your spirit, in your body, in your whole sense of, of, of just sort of experiencing yourself. And I guess what I'd like to say as we begin to close today's conversation is that what you have created in this messy, magnificent life is filled with those, those sentences, those concepts that you don't think about until you think about them and then they're so powerful i absolutely appreciate what you have put together in this magnificent mm. life how can people find out more about all the things that you've done and what you're working on now
1: um they can come to my website JanineRoth.com, and the way you spell my name is with a g and it's th at the end uh and there are a lot. There's lots of free stuff, um, videos to watch, articles to read. Also, they can go uh, to my Facebook page, um, Janine Ross forward slash Facebook, or Facebook.com forward slash Janine That's another way. And also in person, come and be with me at a workshop. At a retreat, I teach retreats a couple of times a year. I do workshops um, twice a year. And so come be with me. Showing up in person is a wonderful thing to do. You get affected, deeply affected by other people, and there's a sense of connectedness that's just not available when you're sitting alone in front of your computer.
0: Gotcha. And that is JanineRoth.com. Thank you so very much for the work that you have been Mm. doing and for the time that you've shared with us today.
1: Mm, Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: And, folks, thank you for joining us on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you may choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. I'd love to hear your questions or comments about today or any Mind Talk program, so do send an email to me at Pamela, PAME. E-L-A, at mindtalk.org. That's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. MindTalk is available to you on demand by going to your favorite platform. You can go to the MindTalk website. Again, that's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot org. And there's also the MindTalk app. So you've got lots of ways to be in touch. And remember, always, folks, if it's unacceptable, then it's unacceptable. You take care. Thank you.